millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The midweek Mother of All Talk Shows is brought to you by our wonderful sponsor in the first hour, 220KM. The author of some of the finest cosmetic products that it's ever been my good fortune to come across and is about to turn them into foodstuff. That's how pure they are. Benjamin Netanyahu is back. Words you never thought you'd be glad to hear. But when you see who'll be in government with him, you'll realize that the polarity in Israeli politics now is between Netanyahu, who wants a low body count in the occupied territories, whilst facts are created on the ground, rendering the once famous two-state solution null and void entirely otios, and people who want to show the Arabs who the real lords of the land are. That quote is directly from the Kahanist leader, Gevur, who will be the power in Netanyahu's government. In fact, he wants to take Netanyahu's place, which may, of course, lead to tensions, which may, of course, lead to the collapse of the government and more elections. But a fat lot of good that will do because the direction of travel is absolutely clear. The once mighty Labour Party, which founded the state of Israel, which governed the state of Israel, throughout its existence for at least 25 years, is now reduced to four members of parliament in a parliament of 120 members. Netanyahu already has 65 MPs, which by Israeli standards is a landslide victory, and they haven't stopped counting yet. The so-called left-wing Meretz, a pro-Zionist but kind of vaguely leftish group, has failed to make the threshold, as has Balad, the Israeli Arab, as they call them, the Palestinian slate of candidates, they have failed to make the threshold also. So it's going to be a parliament where Netanyahu is the moderate voice in government. That's how bleak the situation is. We'll take calls, of course, on that subject and discuss it perhaps more fully when we can on Sunday. The Middle East powder keg is as explosive as ever. Atop the great mosque in Qum in Iran, a red flag has been raised. Not the red flag of socialist revolution, but the red flag of retaliation. The last time it was hoisted was on the assassination of very important people 
in the uh, era of the Donald Trump administration. The flag of retaliation means what it says on the tin. It means that Iran is getting ready to retaliate against those that it holds responsible for the massacre of pilgrims by a mass murderer claimed by ISIS but believed in Iran to have been the work of Saudi Arabia next door. The Saudi Arabian government has told the American government that they expect an Iranian attack on them imminently. The Americans, notwithstanding their recent difficulties with the Saudi government, have said that they are ready to intervene. What could possibly go wrong? A Saudi-American war against Iran with its ever-growing closeness to both Russia and China and the existence of 88 million people in Iran, virtually every one of whom would rally to the flag. The massacre in Shiraz was so horrific and so irreligious, so sacrilegious, that it has managed to unify millions of Iranians, tens of millions of Iranians, onto the streets of their country in support of their government in whatever it does next. As if we didn't have enough war, of course, the Middle East is a sideshow these days compared to, for example, North Korea, which has just fired at least a dozen ballistic missiles so far into the Sea of Japan that they could well have landed in the center of Tokyo. Japan, of course, being the traditional enemy of Korea after Japan invaded, occupied, mass murdered and raped its people in the 1930s and 40s. But of course, South Korea is the creation of the post-war era, the United States, a puppet state in the region, and South Korea has placed its forces on emergency alert. A war on the Korean Peninsula would be a sideshow, compared to the big war that is still raging in the heart of Europe. I've stopped calling it the Ukraine war now, it was, for a time, the Ukraine war since it began in 2014. We'll be talking to a celebrated filmmaker in a minute or two about that. When it started in 2014, it was a Ukrainian civil war. You might say, at least you could argue, I wouldn't, that the Russian intervention in Ukraine, in the eastern part of the country, to defend its co-religionists, its compatriots, its fellow Russians in eastern Ukraine was also a Russia-Ukraine war. You could argue that, though I would say NATO has taken Ukraine as a protectorate from at least 2014, maybe even before. But now it's not a Russia-Ukraine war at all. If you study, as I have been studying, the deaths of Ukrainian, in inverted commas, service personnel 
in the recent battles in Ukraine, you'll see an inordinate number of Polish names. You'll see when they're published online, you won't see them in the fake stream media, an inordinate number of Polish passports retrieved from the dead bodies of Polish fighters. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of Polish and a smaller amount of Romanian forces already fighting at the front line in the war in Ukraine. But the big news this week was that the Pentagon confirmed for the first time that there are American forces now with their boots on the ground in Ukraine. The proximate reason for that is that they have to guard the American weapons that have been sent in such profusion into the battlefield, into the mall that this war has become even before General Winter arrives. But of course, that places them directly in the firing line because a very significant proportion of arriving NATO weaponry in Ukraine is immediately blown up by uh, the Russian armed forces who are themselves now arriving on the battlefield in increasing numbers, both in quantity and in quality. The Russians are now fighting according to their own military doctrine. No more ragbag of militiamen and gendarmes. This is now the real Russian army on the battlefield. And that Russian army will increase its targeting of NATO weaponry now that they know, thanks to the Pentagon, that that weaponry is escorted by American military personnel. So what happens when the first caliber missile blows up an entire platoon of official American forces on the ground in Ukraine? Well, I'm not Einstein, I'm not in possession of a crystal ball, but I think I can work out what happens next. And it's not a pretty sight. The seeding of new US nuclear missiles throughout all of its satrapies in Europe is a matter, or ought to be, of grave concern. In Western countries, most people don't even know that it has happened. Only those that follow military affairs with any degree of closeness are aware that the US has massively reinforced its nuclear strike force throughout the NATO countries, including my own here in Great Britain. But the farther you go, the closer you get to the Russian border, those missiles exist more thickly. And so the scene is being set for a series of conflicts around the world, which may be the final Armageddon. It may be that the end times will be upon us, in which case say your prayers, hug your children close, for the end is nigh. Unless somebody somewhere can see sense and draw us back from the brink of this catastrophic ending to humanity, indeed to the ending of all life on this beautiful planet that God gave us and which we have enjoyed
for so many years. And the other living beings on this earth have enjoyed for many aeons. That person might be the Turkish President Erdogan. You never thought you'd hear me saying that. But he is the only person that is proactively seeking a negotiated end to this conflict. He has today again iterated that he will not allow Sweden to join NATO unless Sweden complies with a series of Turkish demands that it cannot under its own law comply with, namely the repatriation of Kurdish terrorist suspects that Turkey wishes to try. This is not possible for Sweden to do, so Sweden won't be joining NATO. Neither in that case, I'll hazard a guess, will Finland. So, one nothing to Mr. Erdogan. Mr. Erdogan has brokered a return of Russia to the grain deal that was allowing grain from Ukraine to pass out through Sebastopol and into international markets. Not, as was claimed, to feed poor people in poor countries. That was all a ruse, because most of that grain goes to Britain and Ireland, about which more later. But Russia pulled out because Ukraine attacked the Russian fleet in the Black Sea in Sebastopol using a corridor that had been effectively demilitarized for the purposes of allowing the grain to flow into the international markets. But Erdogan has talked the Russians back into the grain deal. Two nothing for Mr. Erdogan. And this evening, Erdogan has announced that he has talked little soldier Schultz, the pretender to power in Germany, into a shared view that he, Erdogan, has been expounding that the Europeans, the Turks and the Russians have to begin to start finding a common language between them. You may say that that's a very small step indeed, but it's a big step forward from where little soldier Schultz was just yesterday when he actually threatened Serbia. By the way, Schultz, not a good idea for German leaders to threaten Serbia. They gave you a bloody good hiding the last time you came calling. But Schultz threatened Serbia just yesterday that they had to choose between the EU and Russia. Today, he's agreed with Erdogan that some common language, some common way forward must be found with President Vladimir Putin. That is if Putin survives the latest news from Associated Press that he's got both pancreatic cancer and Parkinson's disease. That's on top of the lung cancer, brain cancer, stroke and actual death that he has suffered over the last eight months. But assuming President Putin survives all of these hideous ailments, if Erdogan has his way, we will be talked down off the cliff, off the bridge. 
below which the raging torrents seek to sweep us all away. So full marks, Mr. Erdogan. And I never thought that I would be saying that on the mother of all talk shows. In the time available to me, let me explain why I'm still going on about poor Paul Pelosi, who got hammered in his underpants in Nancy Pelosi's palatial home in San Francisco. I don't mean, of course, that he got hammered in that he was blind drunk as he was driving a car just a few weeks ago in the state of California. I don't even mean that he was under the influence of cocaine, even though just a few weeks ago he was found with cocaine in his car. That's right, the husband of the number three person in the United States was driving with four times the allowable level of alcohol in his blood with cocaine in his glove compartment. Now, in any normal country, that would be really, really big news. But it was scarcely news at all. So when I say he got hammered in his underpants, I mean he literally got hammered in his underpants by a gay swinging member of the Green Party who is a nudist. And somehow this got turned into a pre-election story by the Democrats against Donald Trump, who as far as I know was nowhere near San Francisco and is quite positive about underpant parties himself. He likes to party, Donald Trump. He'd probably get on famously with Paul Pelosi, though he doesn't drink alcohol or take cocaine so far, at least as I know. But whatever else you could say about Donald Trump, a gay swinging nudist member of the Green Party from Berkeley, California, is not his fault, is not his responsibility, but the lie machine that is the American fake stream media immediately tried to turn this story into an anti-Republican Party story to try and effect a change in the much speculated landslide defeat that they are going to suffer next week in the midterm elections. That was reason enough for me to raise an eyebrow about poor Paul Pelosi being hammered in his underpants. But there are other reasons. The second thing I read was that the police conceded that they did have security cameras everywhere on and around the Pelosi household. You'd expect that. She is third in line to the presidency after all. But just like in Jeffrey Epstein's jail suicide, the cameras weren't working. The third reason to smell a rat is that as Farron Fronchak told Moats on Sunday, she was at the house just a couple of weeks ago, not inside it, not having a party, but she passed by it. And it was black with escalades and security forces. And you'd expect it 
to be. But on this night, they either weren't there or they didn't notice the gay, swinging, nudist Green Party member from Berkeley, California, who was also in his underpants when the police arrived. And the fourth thing, the fourth rat I smelt was, you know, call me Inspector Clouseau if you like. Ibum, ibum. But I saw the picture of the French windows through which the gay, swinging, nudist Green Party member from Berkeley, California was supposed to have entered the house through except all the broken glass was on the outside and not the inside. And because of the Epstein story, because of the Hunter laptop story, because of what happened to my good friend Tara Reid with Joe Biden, I no longer automatically believe anything that the American deep state and the Democratic Party in America, tell me, I insist on journalism. I insist on skepticism. That is the duty of anyone who calls themselves a journalist. Has that been in evidence in this case so far? Absolutely not. However, the nudist swinger, Green Party member from Berkeley, California, has just pleaded not guilty. And so we have the mother of all trials impending in San Francisco. Now, I mentioned uh, earlier that the war in Ukraine began not in February of this year, but eight years before that. Not a lot of people know that, as Michael Caine might say. But those of us who do know it have had a very great difficulty indeed, bringing it to the attention of the wider public, who believe that wars begin when Sky News and CNN turn up with their cameras to film it. But actually, we're not short of film of the war from 2014. We're just short of brave and skilled journalists to bring it to our attention. And Donald Coulter is one of those. He has made a film, and I want to talk to him about it. Donald joins me now uh, on the line uh, from Moscow, I think. Donald is a political analyst, host of The Revolution Report, sounds like my kind of report, and director of a new film, Eight Years Before. Donald, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Uh, let's start with the film, if we may. Uh, and tell us why you made it, how difficult it was to make, and what the uh, main points that you're bringing out in the film actually are. Hi there, George. Well, thanks again for having me on the show once again. Um, basically, I recorded this documentary film with, uh, in collaboration with international heavyweight champion Jeff Monson, who's an American, and he also has Russian citizenship. He's living here like me, and he's got uh, you know similar political views as as I and you. 
And we filmed this documentary basically throughout 2000, uh, throughout 2021. We wanted to show people what was going on in this conflict that had really uh, been frozen in time that nobody in the West was really paying attention to anymore. I mean, they had heard a little bit about it in 2014 and 2015, obviously exclusively from the Ukrainian uh, point of view. But as we were filming this and we were editing the actual documentary, uh, the special military operation was launched. Uh, the uh, People's Republics in Donbass were recognized as independent by the Russian government. The whole situation changed. So we really had to change the kind of um, the kind of storyline we were going for. Now, by the time of its completion, it's actually become something a lot more important, I think, than what we were even planning on in the beginning. It's become a historical record to show people in the West why Russia launched this special military operation in the first place. Because people that there are so many people in the West that think that Russia just attacked its neighboring country in an unprovoked way. I've seen even journalists from Sky News, BBC, when they're doing interviews with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, they, they continue to ask this question and he continues to give the same answer that, you know, this was not an unprovoked attack. And what our documentary shows is primary source evidence that it was actually Ukraine that provoked this war in the first place. It's been waging a war against the Donbass people since 2014, when the neo-fascist-backed coup, Euromaidan, came to power in Ukraine. And the People's Republics declared um, uh, their, their independence. And actually, People's Republics were also declared in Kharkov and Odessa at that time. What a lot of people don't know is that when Ukraine launched its so-called anti-terror op operation, which was basically just uh, you know, an attack on these civilians, mostly, that said they don't want to be part of this fascist-backed government anymore. Kharkov and Odessa, they were just violently re repressed by the state. And Lugansk and Donetsk were only able to hold a small portion of their territory. And they held that for throughout these eight years. This documentary is called Eight Years Before, because it's about the uh, kind of abuse and constant artillery shelling that the Ukrainian military subjected these people to, as well as the kind of human rights abuses and literal torture that happened on the territory of Lugansk and Donetsk that was held by the Ukrainian military. So in this documentary, you can actually see the translated interviews we did with people who lived near the uh, line of confrontation, as it was called, before the special military operation was launched. They talk about how uh, Ukrainian snipers were just taking pot shots at civilians. One woman talked about how a Ukrainian tank just ran right th ran right into their village and started blowing stuff up and killing people. Like this is kind of crazy stuff that you would never hear in the mainstream media. And they, they never they never talked about it back then in the in the Western media. They don't talk about it now. So people can see this um, this kind of side that has not been available to people in the West in this documentary. It's still on YouTube. It hasn't been taken down yet. And there's also a lot about the actual evidence that points to the real existence of neo-Nazis in Ukraine. They are so much more widespread and powerful than the Western media and Western politicians say. Just because Zelensky is Jewish doesn't mean that Ukraine is not uh, does not have a government that's basically propped up by these violent armed neo-Nazis. So that's basically the main con. That's the uh, main yeah. Uh...
That's actually the point I wanted to uh, take you to. Not everyone in Ukraine is a Nazi. Not everyone in the Ukrainian army is a Nazi. Not everyone in the Ukrainian government is a Nazi. But those Nazis that there are, and they are plentiful and widespread and powerful, were all on this line of confrontation. Uh, Hence, in in Mariupol, uh, the battle was against a literal Nazi uh, regiment, the Azov uh, regiment. Do they feature in your documentary? Yeah, we definitely talk about them. Uh, and like you said, I mean, these these armed neo-Nazis, uh, like you said, they, they are, were and still are really the most ferocious uh, pro-Kiev fighters against Russia, against the Donbass People's Republics. Of course, like you said, again, uh, you know, not all Ukrainians are fascists. Of course, there are actually probably many, many Ukrainians that aren't so happy about the Kiev's role uh, in in what they've done in Donbass and what they've done against uh, the, you know, in, in terms of uh, being so hostile to Russia throughout these eight years as well. But Zelensky has banned all political opposition. These people cannot really speak out at all uh, unless they're going to be really repressed by these neo-Nazi groups that are, um, you know, doing most of the fighting there as well. But actually, I I talk about the Azov Battalion, but I don't focus so much on them because I feel like the Azov Battalion has been hyper-focused on in the Western media as sort of uh, you know, just the the only neo-Nazi organization in the Ukrainian military that's actually significant, and they try to play them down. But I actually talk about all of these other neo-Nazi armed organizations that you just never hear of in the Western media that exist, and they have committed crimes as well. I talk about, there's the IDAR Battalion, there's the Donbass Battalion, there's the C-14 Militia, there's uh, um, there's Trident, there's all, there's so many neo-Nazi militias. Some of them have have literally had like prison torture, prisons for torture that were only discovered once the Russian military moved into these liberated territories. So I talk about a number of those in the documentary as well to give people a bigger idea that it's not just Azov, but there are really tons of neo-Nazis in the Ukrainian military. And one more thing interesting about them, uh, you know, not the entire, it's not the entire Ukrainian military that's fascist. There are also people conscripted into the military. There's many thousands of them that are forced to fight. And many times they're sent to the front with the neo-Nazi battalions put behind them as barrier battalions. So if these conscripts retreat, they're shot or arrested. That's another interesting thing. Indeed. Uh, And as you say, events have turned your film from an important but historic documentary, a documentary about history, into being one about current events. This is a current events documentary that people really should watch on YouTube. Uh, One of the aspects that struck me today, uh, you may be familiar with the charge of the Light Brigade and the uh, British role in the Crimean War. It turns out that it was Britain that attacked Crimea uh, just uh, in the last week. Uh, The British are back in Crimea, though this time not quite uh, so gallant in the charge of the Light Brigade. Uh, Tell us about this internationalization of the conflict that I spoke about in my introduction. 
this is really no longer a war between Russia and Ukraine, is it? No, of course not. And I think really from even even from the beginning, and I think you mentioned that in the program as well, I mean, the West and NATO has been involved in backing the Euromaidan uh, coup d'etat, but definitely they are much more involved now than they ever have been. Uh, of course, we heard about the drone attack on the Russian Black Sea fleet that was trying to uh, basically make sure that these UN uh, grain corridors, the, the grain corridors that were supposed to be safe under the UN brokered grain deal to make sure that poor countries can get grain uh, from Ukraine specifically so that there's not a food crisis. Um, these Russian ships that were trying to assure the security there were attacked by Ukrainian drones. And this, according to the Russian Defense Ministry, was carried out by um, or was assisted by British intelligence. So this is just one of the more recent uh, episodes of Western involvement here that we've seen. But of course, there's tons, there, there's many, many more examples. I mean, just the fact that this, uh, the, the Ukrainian military's fighting capacity has been completely turned around by the massive influx of Western weapons going to the Ukrainian military. As you mentioned earlier in the program, again, United States troops are now on Ukrainian soil. This is for the first time since the beginning of Russia's special military operation when they uh, left Ukraine uh, early on, and now they're back. Uh, and like they, like you said earlier, they say that they're here to protect Western weapons, but it's interesting that they've decided to come now because Western weapons have been here for a long time. And it's kind of worrying because there's so much rhetoric and also actions by the West, specifically the United States, connected to nuclear war right now. I mean, uh, also Norway just uh, put its military on high alert and Russia called that a provocation. We keep seeing we keep hearing statements from American officials saying that they don't have any evidence that Russia is planning on using a tactical nuclear weapon or anything, because really Moscow is not planning to do something like that. And yet we see the United States continue to move its nuclear weapons and nuclear capable uh, infrastructure closer and closer to Russia. So this is this is the, the West is obviously completely involved in from, you know, matters of a potential nuclear war to basically sustaining the Ukrainian military with the continued flow of arms, as well as intelligence support that's really important as well, because the Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkov just last month, I think it was, or uh, a month and a half ago, that was completely, th that success completely relied on U.S. intelligence helping them organize that. I, uh, I have not been worried about the NATO armies because I know how, uh, how weak they are, you know. The Netherlands armed forces are not going to fight anybody. And neither are most of the armed forces of most of the countries of NATO. But I don't mean to be unkind, uh, but the British armed forces could all fit in to a single football stadium in England. I mean the army, the navy and the air force in one football stadium. Uh, so uh, I haven't been worried about them, but the NATO country that is now massively involved in Ukraine is Poland, which of course once itself occupied very substantial parts of what is now Ukraine. Thanks to the Soviet Union, it's now Ukraine. It would still be in Poland, if not 
right. uh, for that. Um, how, how dangerous is this increasing Polish involvement in your view? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's seriously worrisome, especially because, you know, Poland essentially has a military presence in Ukraine right now. I mean, they're mostly mercenaries, or at least that's what they're saying. But let's not forget, we've been hearing a lot of statements from Polish politicians as well recently saying that they're looking to lay claim once again on a lot of territories that they lost in World War II. So it's interesting to to try and think about what's going to happen after this conflict is over are those it's not going to be so easy to get rid of these polish um troops on ukrainian territory if they're not willing to leave that could be a serious problem as well especially Pol- if poland decides it's going to use the fact that it's a nato state in the in the uh, event that russia wins this conflict it's they could potentially say we're not going to move our troops what are you going to do we're a member of nato so that that I think uh, could lead to a, a bigger confrontation as well, especially because I think it's really these s- super nationalist states on the border of Russia that are far more dangerous in terms of the possibility of a third world war than the United States, for example. I think the United States wants this conflict to go on for as long as possible so that they can basically give Russia as much of a bloody nose as they possibly can in the process of the conflict. But based on what we've seen in Ukraine and based on what we know about Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia and Poland as well, I don't know, I think uh, some of these hyper-nationalists in Eastern Europe would be willing to go to war with Russia. Now, uh, tell us uh, again how people can see the film, Donald. Well, you can check it out on YouTube for as long as it's there at the Revolution Report, but we've also got a website that no matter what happens to the YouTube channel, it's going to be on our website. You can find it at the-revolution-report.com. Look forward to it. hope everyone checks it out. Donald Korter, thanks for joining us from Moscow. Uh, Now, the poll, should we automatically believe the Paul Pelosi story? It doesn't read well, Paul. Sorry, Paul. Uh, Yes, we should automatically believe it. 9%, 9%, no, 91% on uh, Twitter, on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe uh, if you're watching on my YouTube channel and please like the show. Both of these acts will help me with Mr. Algorithm. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube or voting on YouTube, brother, you've said 7% we should believe the Paul Pelosi story, 93% we should not. And on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, please follow me on that. This is the best of all. I don't think we've ever had a poll response like it. Yes, we should believe the Paul Pelosi story, 1%, no, 99%. That ballot is not rigged, I can assure you. Let me take a quick break and then we'll be back with much more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's take a call from Eric in London on Ukraine. Go ahead, Eric. Oh, hello, George. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Um, no, I just wanted to ask you two things very briefly. Um, first one, obviously, it's about the Russia situation. Um, I, I'm a bit concerned that, obviously, Ukraine um, are making some progress. And I wanted to ask you um, if you think that they will uh, take the city of Kherson. And if they do, um, you know, will it give them a massive advantage to then taking Crimea? Uh, and my other question was, um, you know about the uh, partial mobilization of all the troops? And obviously the Western media say that they're rubbish and no good. And obviously you're, you yourself have said that they obviously have had some military training. How does anyone know what standard they are and what training they've had? Because obviously, you know, we're not in Russia ourselves. Well, I'm not a military expert, although I have more military experience than most politicians who opine on this matter and even more so, uh, more than journalists and broadcasters who do. I can, after all, assemble and disassemble an SLR rifle in the dark, and I can and have fired mortars. Uh, so I, I'm not a military expert, but there's more chance of me flying on Elon Musk's spacecraft to Mars than the Ukrainian armed forces winning this war and retaking Crimea. And if you think about it, the very idea is entirely fanciful. Uh, the uh, hypersonic nuclear superpower uh, of the Russian Federation simply could not afford to lose Crimea at the hands of the Ukrainian military. And so it will not happen. Uh, there are no circumstances in which it will happen. I don't believe they will take Kherson. And even if the Russians withdrew from Kherson, it would not make much military difference at all. Not least because General Winter is arriving now on the battlefield. Here, where I am, never mind in the, in the parts of Europe we're talking about here, which will soon be baked entirely hard and then covered entirely in snow until the spring. Uh, the idea that the Russian armed forces are going to be defeated in winter when they have potentially 25 million men that they could field on the battlefield is simply fanciful. I don't want this war to go on. I want it to come to a negotiated end. I wish and I believe that it need never have started. So. Uh, I take no pleasure out of either side's military advances and certainly no pleasure in either side's military losses because those losses are paid in the blood of the poor bloody infantrymen. And uh, the uh, mercenaries that are 
uh, fighting on the Ukrainian side will not die willingly for Ukraine. In fact, many of the Ukrainian armed forces there will not die willingly for Ukraine. So the war can only end one way, Eric. I just hope that it can be brought to a negotiated end before it ends that way. Because if it does, there will be no Ukraine to speak of at the end of it. Uh, Bruno is on the line from the United States, but oddly wants to talk about Scottish independence. Come on, Bruno. <laughs> George, you truly are a pleasure to, to listen to. Um, this is my question. You were a, a backer of Brexit and you wanted to give more robust democracy to the British people. I'm curious as to why you don't have the same feeling towards Scottish independence. Because uh, Scotland is a country of just five million people. It is entirely dependent on its trade with uh, the rest of the UK. Uh, it is already heavily dependent on state spending. 50% of the people who work in Scotland and pay tax work for the state. Uh, and if the state were to disappear, uh, that work would disappear. And the other 50% uh, of the people of Scotland either don't work at all or pay no tax at all. So low are their earnings. So no country uh, would be less likely to prosper uh, in a so-called state of independence than a Scotland as emaciated industrially as that. This would be compounded, multiplied by the avowed intention of Scotland to uh, apply, only apply, you can't be sure how it would go, to rejoin the fading, failing European Union. Apart from everything else, and that everything includes adopting the euro, which means meeting the convergence terms to join the euro, which means reducing uh, our uh, budget deficit to 3%, it's currently 13%, which would lay waste to every public service in Scotland. And I live there, so it's a bit more important to me, Bruno, than it is, with all respect, to you in the United States. It would have to mean the building of a hard wall. And a la Donald Trump, the English will not be paying for it. And that hard border will become a monkey on the back, or would become a monkey on the back of enormous proportions, a gorilla on the back of an already devastated Scottish economy. So I believe in Britain. It's been a single state for more than 300 years. Uh, I and the party I lead, the Workers' Party of Britain, even at my advancing age, hope to govern Britain, a state of almost 70 million people with the capacity to be genuinely independent in the world, economically independent, militarily independent, and politically and economically and in every regard, a genuinely independent country. Scotland, even if it declared independence, would have no independence at all. Now, let me turn my mind to Ireland. It's never far away from Ireland. I'm of Irish background myself. 
um, uh, Thomas O'Reilly, my Irish grandfather, uh, came as an economic migrant to Britain as millions and millions of Irish people sailed across the Western Ocean, sailed across the Irish Sea, scattered to the four corners of the world. Such were the political and economic uh, privations, predations, to which Ireland was subject. And of course, a part of Ireland, one of Ireland's four green fields, uh, remains in bondage, but perhaps not for that much longer. Sinn Féin, the uh, party of Irish unity, are the biggest party now in the north of Ireland. Uh, people like me, Roman Catholics like me, are the majority in the north of Ireland for the first time. And uh, Sinn Féin are easily the biggest party in the south of Ireland, in the Free State, or what they call the Irish Republic. So it may be that in the next 10 years, maybe even five years, that events, events, dear boy, uh, will bring about the reunification of the island. Certainly, I hope to live to see it. But of course, there's normal life outside the constitution in Ireland, even in Irish politics, even though the governing parties who pretend to hate each other, but are actually even more than the British parties, two cheeks of the same arse, Fianna Foyle and Fianna Gael, who are now in an unholy coalition. Although they're not finding it difficult because, as I say, they all stand for the same things. Uh, they are responsible for mounting economic and social problems in the Free State. And then there's Lord Mountbatten. You've heard me talk about him many times. And the coming to the throne in Britain of King Charles III, uh, whose idol, whose role model was Lord Mountbatten, has begun to be even more problematic than it already was. Because a young boy, represented by my own lawyers, in Belfast, I should say, for full disclosure, Kevin Winters, uh, KW Human Rights law, uh, Lawyers, are representing a young boy, or who was a young boy, in the Kinkora Guest House, an infamous hellhole in which all kinds of hideous sex crimes were carried out against the young boys being kept under care there. And one of the criminals, it is alleged, posthumously, is Lord Mountbatten. You would have thought that was a rather big story in Ireland, but it isn't. Just proving that you don't have to be British to cover up unpleasant news. But Che Bose, the famous political commentator in Ireland and a good friend of the show, is here to talk about all of these things. Che, uh, welcome back on the mother of all talk shows. Let me start with Mountbatten, may I? Uh, why is that not a massive story in Ireland? Well, George, your introduction is very interesting and it's quite accurate. I suppose Lord Mountbatten was, um, of course, met a, a very grisly end here uh, at the hands of the IRA. And I think the situation regarding his death, uh, he was killed, assassinated by the Provisional IRA, 
in, in the 1970s. I remember it well myself. There was a, a number of innocent people killed during that killing as well. I think that has contributed somewhat to a sense of deference to, to Lord Louis Mountbatten, as you say, uh, King Charles's uh, mentor and, and Uncle Louis, as he was well known. Um, I think elements of the Irish press back in the 1970s did certainly uh, tried to expose Mountbatten's behaviour. Um, but again, uh, the politicisation of Mountbatten's death and murder, uh, he lived in, a, 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 well, he had he had ownership of a, a huge castle called Classy Bourn in County Sligo in the Republic of Ireland. And he often uh, holidayed in that uh, huge estate. Uh, and th- th- that fact of, a lot of sort of concern that to expose him as 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 a, a, a quite prolific paedophile, which is what he was, um, and could sort of uh, um, cause angst to the free state government at the time. Yeah, I mean angst indeed. But now that we know what we know, that he was a prolific paedophile, and not only that, may have been fishing in the sordid pond of the Kinkora, uh, the Kinkora boys' home, that makes the scandal of such proportions. After all, I mean, I just noticed, I didn't know uh, about it, and I hesitate even to make the point, but one of the children in line for the throne, one of the children of uh, Prince William, uh, is called after him. The, the little boy is called Louis. Uh, they are still holding up a prolific paedophile as, uh, as someone to be revered. It yeah. is still surprising, notwithstanding the point you make about the end he had, uh, that this is not a major and burning issue, at least in the media, if not amongst the politicians. Yeah, and it's important to mention that smaller publications, independent ones back at the time, of his killing and subsequently there was there was rumors about the Kinkora boys home they were widely known and there was also suggestions from very reliable sources that the Kinkora boys home was a part of a British intelligence uh, web to entrap um, senior loyalist uh, pro-British politicians in the north of Ireland and some from the south of Ireland as well as part of a paedophile ring and that the British intelligence services were actively involved in using the compromise gained um, uh, at the time from the abuse of these children and these young boys. Uh, as you say, some of whom have now come forward uh, to expose uh, in great detail, I must say, and I've read some of the incredible work that the Village magazine has, has written about this. Uh, Michael Smith, the editor there, has done an incredible, incredible job. And another journalist by the name of De Burka, uh, it has have relentlessly pursued the story of the terrible abuse at the King Cora boys' home. I think it's a mixture of deference to Lord Louis, as he was known in Sligo, and it's also a, a, a real um, a concern that if you lifted the lid on what was happening in King Cora, that nexus between the British uh, security services in the north uh, and in the south, and the complicity potentially there would potentially cause cat- catastrophic revelations about some significantly wealthy and powerful people like Lord Louis Mountbatten. Yeah, uh, all the more reason to lift that lid uh, so far as I'm concerned. But I take your point, of course, 
Um, but it leads me neatly on to the next thing I wanted to ask you. I have many times been at events in the Free State where I was probably the strongest supporter of Irish reunification in the room. In other words, I was always conscious that there's a certain ambivalence in the South about the reunification of the country. Now, that was before the rise and rise of Sinn Féin. Uh, I wonder if that means that's changed, but what's your take on that? How keen are the people in the Free State to see the 32-county republic? Well, that's an interesting question, George, and it's one that is, I suppose, central right now to the political discourse in Ireland, but not as central as it should be. Uh, I suppose uh, with Sinn Féin in, 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 a, in a dominant position, north and south of the border, you could definitely say that there's a nationalist pro-unification party, uh, are, are a definite majority on the island, as you very uh, uh, um, comprehensively in, introduced the political situation in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, as, as you very uh, rightly outlined, that there has been a, a coalescing uh, dysfunction in Ireland. And the reason that coalition exists is solely to keep Sinn Féin, uh, the nationalist pro-unity party, out of power. That's the only reason they exist. These are people who swore they'd rather drown in each other's blood than ever uh, work together. But suddenly, as soon as Sinn Féin uh, looked like they could form a government or at least had a significant majority, they have coalesced. And they'll be in power for several years to come yet before a general election will be called. And I think when you consider the, the critical situation in Ireland regarding housing. Housing is the big issue right now, followed by healthcare. We have very dysfunctional housing and healthcare uh, uh, situation in Ireland. So, I mean, unity right now would certainly be, to the, to the delight of the, the governing parties, quite a bit down the agenda uh, um, for the general public. We've got rising inflation. We've got a huge... Uh, accommodation crisis exacerbated by, uh, I think, 60,000 Ukrainian refugees who are uh, flowing into the country at the rate of about 1,000 a week. Uh, we've nowhere to, to accommodate these unfortunate people. Uh, they've been sleeping on the streets and in airports uh, recently. So there are a lot of problems right now for this government. Unity, I think, for the vast majority of Irish people, certainly in the Republic, is something that we would aspire to. Um, have Sinn Féin thought out the realities of that unity? How do we incorporate Britishness into uh, United Ireland? I think that's something that there's a dearth of exploration with, with the, the people who see themselves as British in the North. There's still a significant uh, number of people who consider their identity to, to be British. And there's a lot of very interesting thinking going on about what a United Ireland could look like. It could be a federalized Ireland. It could be an Ireland based on different types of tax codes. It could be a, a complete, you know, let's start and rebuild again. So I think people are willing to look at different ideas on, on a United Ireland. But the cost of it and the uh, priority for that right now certainly wouldn't be uh, at the top of the list for most worried uh, and, 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 you know, put to the collar uh, tax uh, payers on this island, either side of the border, I would suggest. Yeah, I mean, who would who would be costed? Uh, the, uh, you know, East, this is not East Germany and West Germany, is it? Uh, the, uh, the North uh, is not a basket case. Uh, 
uh, it's, uh, I'm guessing, roughly economically comparable uh, to the South. Unless I've got that completely wrong, it's merely anecdotal as I go around from North to South. They don't look like a poor country and a rich one uh, to me. Uh, and so the actual cost of unity, of one part having to subsidize the other, uh, would not really uh, be there unless you know different. But the, uh, for the people in the North, uh, there are even people who support unity. There are some real problems about uniting with the South. You've Absolutely. got to pay a lot of money to go and see a doctor in the South, which you don't uh, in the North. The benefits are better in the North than they are in the South. Uh, speak to that, Jay. Yeah, absolutely. The Irish health system uh, is for a very small population of about 5 million people. We pay more for healthcare than most other countries in the OECD and we have worse health outcomes. The chief executive of our health service in the South, the state system, is paid over £400,000 sterling in in real terms, uh, you know, so we, we pay a lot to our doctors. We pay a lot to our, our, our top heavy bureaucracy, but we're getting terrible outcomes. We need a national health service in Ireland and Sinn Féin are advocating for that, uh, which is obviously free at the point of care for everybody in the north of Ireland. It's been a, it, it's been a, a matter of great envy and, and admiration in the south. So I think there's certainly parts of the northern system that would be adopted gleefully in the south. And similarly, my point about the unification of the island not being at the top of the agenda right now is because there's such pressing issues with inflation, healthcare, and accommodation in, in the island. It's not to speak to any sort of idea that the, the passion for that doesn't exist. And, and regarding cost, the cost element would be a, a further fear factor added in by those who would be worry, worried about unity and worried about that, that eventuality, George, just to clarify my point on that, that the cost can be huge or they can be small. But I think most economists would, would suggest and believe that a unified Ireland would be a far more um, uh, smoothly run economy. I mean, we, the problems we're facing with the, uh, the uh, the Irish Sea border and the protocol, etc., with the unionist uh, politicians and the collapse of Stormont yet again, uh, on the basis of the resolution of that, are all about uh, the the two jurisdictions on one very very small island. The uh, the people like you and me that support Irish unity, I've got to try harder to reassure uh, the minority uh, as it now is in the north, don't we? Uh, and you've spoken to some of the possibilities, federalism, uh, um, binationalism. There's no reason, for example, why those who see their identity as British uh, cannot be citizens of a united Ireland, but also citizens of Britain. Uh, there's no reason why we can't have the, the tunnel, uh, the bridge uh, permanently connecting uh, Scotland uh, at not far from where I live, uh, from Stranraer to Larne, uh, roughly speaking. Uh, there, there are many confidence-building measures that could be taken. And maybe they are. I'm not that close to it anymore. Uh, but uh, I don't hear enough uh, of these reassuring uh, noises, tone. The tone is not reassuring enough. And it needs to step up that, doesn't it? 
I think absolutely. I think one of the big um, gaps in the Sinn Féin vision for a United Ireland, it's easy to say, you know, we, we want United Ireland. It's going to be great. We're all going to get on. Um, what's the reality around that? There's a significant population in the North then who become a minority, a grieved minority. If we don't bring people into that uh, shared vision and we don't allow them to have their inputs on symbols, which are very important in Ireland. You're, as a Scotsman, will understand uh, Celtic Rangers. Uh, you know, symbolism here is incredibly important. Many people have died for those symbols. So it's important that we, we bring those two shared cultures, which are very similar. The Scots and Irish cultures are similar in so many ways. I mean, genetically, we're essentially the same people to a great degree. I mean, my own DNA and my dad's, we're kind of, the only DNA we have other than Irish or Gaelic Irish is, is, is Scots, you know? So we're, we're, we're very much brother nations in so many ways, uh, culturally and historically as well. So I think there is a sense that we could uh, create a new shared island, a vision for that. But the actual policies and the fora for that to be discussed with our unionist and, and British friends and neighbours is lacking. It's definitely lacking. I think the, the real effort must be looking for where the problems could be with a united Ireland, putting significant money, effort and education into saying, look, this is a, a, a destination for us all. It's not a victory for one or a loss for another. The idea that the uh, Scots Gaelic or the unionist community is going to just jump on the ferry to, uh, from Larne to Stanraer and just head back to the United Kingdom if there was a vote of 51%, if you had the same vote for, that we got Brexit through on, to suggest that the unionist population is going to fade off back to Scotland or to England, it's, it's just so naive. So again, there is not enough investment and discussion about how we achieve this shared island. It has to be done peacefully because very quickly, as we've seen before here and all around the world, uh, these ethno-nationalist conflicts can erupt into the most brutal affairs. And we suffered here on this island for, for decades and decades and we, nobody wants to go back there. Jay, it's not been a great line, but it's been a great conversation. Thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let me take a quick break and then I'll tell you the remarkable results of our poll. I'll be right back. Well, the good news for the Pelosi's is that on my Telegram channel, uh, support for their story being automatically believed has doubled from 1% to 2%. It's 7% on uh, YouTube and it is, I think, 8% on Twitter. But you can still vote, we're not at the end yet. So if the Pelosi's want to rally support, they are welcome to do so. Now, on the line is Chris in Sunderland, who has a different view to me on Joe Biden and is brave enough to come up and confront me with it. So let's welcome Chris in Sunderland, welcome. Hello, boss. Um, when, nice when to it, hear when from it comes you. How are to, you? Um, um, you know, uh, uh, accusing Joe Biden of being a little bit of a dodgepot, being a little bit of a, like a little bit of a weirdo when it comes to, um, well, talk about sex. But, George, you have had a convicted sex offender on your show twice and on Sunday and you have the audacity 
to like kind of jump around this idea of Joe Biden. Like, of course, of course, accusations. And if it comes out in court, I, I will be among you saying, yes, this is a sex pervert. But you have had convicted sex offenders on your shore purely because they agree with you. Now, if they didn't, if they were Tories, if they, if they weren't in, uh, agreeing with you... Is what, you if you're talking about Scott, if you're talking about Scott Ritter, he's far worse than a Tory. Uh, he is no political friend of mine, and he's not on the show uh, because he agrees with me. He's on the show because he was a former U.S. Marine intelligence officer and a former arms inspector who was an arch enemy of mine in the long struggle over Iraq. Now, he was set up on an internet sting. Uh, he was convicted by the U.S. injustice system. If you expect me to automatically exclude for all time from the airwaves, uh, a man with important and urgent expertise because of a setup by the FBI uh, angry at his defection from the US cause in Iraq, I simply won't do it. Now, I know nothing about Scott Ritter's personal predilections uh, and Joe Biden is still the last time I looked, the President of the United States of America with a Twitter account, unlike Scott Ritter. Even though Twitter had to flag his latest tweet as being false and forcing the White House to withdraw it. So I'm not trying to close down Joe Biden. I'm not trying to put him off Twitter. I'm not trying to get him out of the White House because he likes to sniff little girls rather too nauseatingly closely for my liking. He is the elected president of the US and will be until they push him and his bath chair, metaphorically speaking, off the cliff. Here's me on to gather. I've pinned myself as in Stockport on Monday, which is the next place I'll be making a public uh, engagement. It is actually a terrific uh, app, and we're now going to meet Robert Feder, who is the founder and CEO of Encode Systems that has launched the Together app, and a very live wire he is too. Uh, Robert, thanks uh, for joining us. Thanks, of course, for your sponsorship. We had uh, a synergy, as they say, in, in business. Uh, you are looking for thinking customers, and I've got at least a million thinking customers uh, on my purview. So uh, uh, it's kind of obvious that we would find our way to each other, but thank you for it in, in any case. Well, we're very grateful for the opportunity. And uh, I think it was about a couple of weeks ago, you had a caller, his name was Douglas, and he was saying something along the lines of, maybe we should get our own app together um, rather than have all the tech giants involved and maybe there's something that uh, we should do. And I was watching the show and I was thinking, that's us. We've got to sponsor the, 
sponsor the show, which has been a lively one already, hasn't it? And uh, we want to kind of echo that spirit inside together for open, tolerant and respectful conversation. So tell us, uh, for the viewers that are not already on it, though I suspect people are reaching for their phones right now, uh, what does what can you do on the app? Quite a few have already joined during, during the show, I've noticed. Um, it, it's a social media app where you can um, start discussions, discussion threads on any topic that you wish, and you can locate those discussions and pin them on different parts of the world if you wish to do that. So I could have a discussion about moats and I could start having it locally. And anybody that wants to check out the discussion that might be nearby can see see what people are talking about. Um, of course, inside those things, inside those threads, you can share video, uh, text, pictures, all those kinds of things. And uh, you can also then explore what other people are saying and see who they're following and the kinds of things that they're posting. And if you want to, you can direct message them privately. So it, it's uh, it, it's a kind of, we think of it as a social media app, but with a geographic and local twist to it. Yeah, twist, that's a, a good way of describing it. How does it differ from Twitter that most of the people watching this will be on, at least until Elon Musk uh, begins to charge them for a blue tick. How, what's the difference uh, between Together and Twitter? The, the main thing, I think, is the whole thing about geography and uh, locality. So with Twitter, it's primarily you're tweeting to the world and you can tweet. So you can you can uh, uh, message to the world with Together, but also you can look at what's happening in a specific area, a specific location, and create a local discussion. It can either be local around you in your backyard, or it can be local in some other place that has an interest to you. So uh, we, we originated in the States, so we have uh, some of our co-creators are based over there. So I'm very interested in what's happening in Arizona at the moment. So I'm often looking at what's happening in Phoenix, and at the same time, I'm very interested in what's happening in London because that's where I work and live. So the real thing is the whole geographic element. There's another thing you can do with Together, which is interesting. Um, when we first thought about how people might use the app, we are thinking about events and festivals, possibly even marches and thinking about uh, you, George, protest marches. And it's a way that you can start having a discussion in that kind of a, a crowd, that geography. And if you wanted to, you could share your location in real time with other people without having to have them as friends, without having to have their private details. So you can share location publicly for a period of time when you want to. And you can also um, project yourself with whatever alias that, that you wish. So you don't actually have to, um, uh, declare your identity. And these are things which increasingly are going to differentiate us from any any other kind of app that's out there. Um, so I, it, it, I think when people try the app, they look at it, it's also very different the way it works and operates. So it'll become very, very clear instantly how it's different. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that is an important uh, caveat that you make. Although you can say, I'm by the big tent, at this festival, 
uh, I'm a mother of all talk shows supporter. Any others who are in the festival who want to come and have a drink with me and listen to the show with me at nine o'clock or whatever, uh, you can do that, but you don't have to. The people don't need to know who you are or where you are. No, you don't have to share your location. You don't have. And it's it's interesting. You, you've um, you asked earlier on, had we thought about um, dating and matchmaking? Well, what we originally thought is, as I said, the festivals, events and those kinds of things. Uh, but what we've seen is the way people are using the app is they start to check out what other people are posting, obviously, whether or not they're nearby as well. So there might be people that they could potentially meet. And then they start to have private discussions with those people and see how those those conversations go. So that we we are seeing some people getting together, either as friends or something more. And that is an interesting thing that we hadn't originally planned for or or, or suspected but it is, is something that is happening. Now, uh, who's behind the app, Robert? You mentioned Encode Systems. Uh, we're, we originated uh, in the US, um, in Arizona. We've got a team that uh, co-created and developed the, the, uh, the, the product. Uh, that team is, uh, some of us are here in Europe. You can tell from my accent, I'm a Brit. Um, we have uh, people, inside the rest of Europe as well. But we also have a team out in the States and we even have people uh, in Japan. Now it is a small team. We're not a, we're not a huge conglomerate and we're enthusiasts that felt that there was a gap and that, and we're trying, and that's what we're filling. So you're not big tech, but I hope that by sponsoring the mother of all talk shows, you'll become bigger tech than you were at the beginning. How do our people now watching this, how do they get your app? Well, it, it's, you can just go to either the App Store for Apple or the Google Play Store. Uh, just search for Together 2GATHR and uh, you can download it for that. It's free and it will work on tablets as well as uh, smartphones. And that's all there is to it. If you want to check out a little bit more, you can go to the website together.net and uh, uh, just check it out from there. And what I'd like to say is um, anybody that wants to try it, as I said, it is for free and uh, it, we'd be very grateful if we can get some new users and we're excited about this sponsorship. Brilliant. Uh, now, Facebook lost the the, you've lost the e. Uh, why have you spelt it together without the E? Because it's such a brilliant name without the E, isn't it, George? It's that straightforward. It's so cool. <laughs> it looks so cool. It's very cool. <laughs> it's a very, very cool app. And I congr congratulate you for it. And you're a pretty cool CEO also. Many thanks for your sponsorship and for coming on the show tonight, Robert Feder. My pleasure. Together. Please uh, help us, help him download that app. Let me take some calls. Jerry is in Massachusetts on the energy crisis, looming large in the U.S. You've run out of diesel, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, I guess we have. Uh, but I'd like to uh, maybe uh, talk about something positive for Europe if they take the uh, opportunity. Uh, there's a revolution going on, and the revolution is in, in uh, physics. And um, 
you've heard of the uh, unified field theory and all that that Einstein had worked on. And um, uh, people have, uh, scientists have solved this problem. And this, uh, this is going to open up all kinds of opportunities for new technologies, uh, including, you know, uh, uh, control of gravity, uh, infinite, infinite power, clean power. Uh, they're saying like a, a cubic centimeter of space, which is not empty according to them, um, can power the world for, for like millions of years. That's how much power there is there. And there's also many other um, uh, new, you know, new uh, uh, opportunities there. And if Europe, because of their position, they're in dire straits, could take advantage of that invest you know in some kind of research in um like like the um uh manhattan pro uh project that they did in the united states something like that invest like millions or billions of dollars into it get all the smartest people you can get gather and all the engineers and work on this you guys will be free you'll be free of uh United States, and you'd be free of uh, Russia. You'd have your own energy, and you wouldn't have to depend on anybody. And of course, that eventually. Well, the Manhattan Project, uh, the Manhattan Project, of course, was the project that invented the nuclear bomb, uh, which uh, destroyed uh, humanity in two Japanese cities, and may well yet before we're able to reach this energy Valhalla you describe destroy the rest of us. Jerry, thanks. Wonderful to hear that Massachusetts accent. I, I, I heard a bit of Ted Kennedy in that voice. Now, uh, have we got Kenny in Acton? Because if we do, I'd like to, I'd like to uh, finish the show with him. But he has dropped off the uh, line. Thanks uh, anyway. Uh, I'd like to thank the uh, sponsors. Uh, uh, he's here, Kenny. I wanted to finish with him. So before I do, let me thank the sponsors together and uh, KM220, uh, who have made this entire show possible. Please support them, and then they'll keep supporting us. Kenny is, I understand, on the line. Go ahead, Ken. Hello, George. How are you doing? Okay. Now, all right, nice to hear from you. Hi, you too. I didn't really have much to say because there's that much been happening in the world. It's like, where the hell do you start? But as I fancy I'd sing song. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was hoping you'd say, yeah. to be perfectly honest. I think we okay. need cheering up with a Kenny from Acton sing song. On you okay. go. Go on yourself, as we say in Scotland. Well... George, there's more to rock and roll than just Elvis Presley, and I'm going to sing a different rock and roll or song tonight. And as soon as I start, okay. I'll try to do you, guess who is. Okay. Well, it's Saturday night, and I just got paid. Fool about the money, don't try to say it. My heart says, go, go, have a time. Saturday night, and I'm feeling fine. I'm going to rock it up. I'm going to rip it up. 
Gonna rip I'm gonna it. shake it up. Gonna ball it up. At the ball I'm gonna rock it up and ball tonight. Got me a date and I won't be late. Pick her up in my 88. Shack going down by the Union Hall. When the joint starts jumping, I'll have a ball. I'm gonna rock it up. I'm gonna rip it up. I'm gonna shake it up. Gonna ball it up. I'm gonna rock it up and ball tonight. Well, Bill Haley in the comments, if I'm not wrong. No, it was Little Richard. <laughs> was it Little Richard? How could I get that wrong? As my eight-year-old Rip, son Rip is a Little Richard, song originally, but uh, Elvis Presley actually covered covered it, and uh, he sung it Did he? in the fifties as well. Long, long tall's, long tall Sally, good golly, Miss Molly, uh, Lucille. These are three of the greatest rock Keep on knocking, tracks but you can't come time. in. Keep on, yeah. I mean, Little no, Richard it's was... It's uh, we are not Schwarzenegger. If, if there was no Little Richard, you could argue there would, be, would have been no Elvis, right? Exactly. Little Richard was on the scene before Elvis, and the first song that Elvis Presley sung on television was a Little Richard song. It was Ready Teddy. And he had such ready, a unique... Ready Teddy, I'm ready. That's it. That's it. Or at least it was one of the first songs that Elvis sung on live on TV. But Lil Richard's such a unique, Fantastic. amazing voice that you could not emulate it. Uh, totally. You know, you totally. can and, you can uh, sing any and, uh, pretty much dynamism. any Elvis song. Hey, George. He had a dynamism that uh, Elvis definitely uh, borrowed from. In fact, in the latest biopic, uh, the two men meet together, don't they? Upstairs in that smoky uh, blues jazz club uh, it's a kind of magic moment anyway kenny i could talk to you all night about little richard and elvis and i apologize for uh misidentifying uh, the singer of the song you gave us thanks for joining us we've covered the world tonight we've been in ireland we've been uh, across the war uh, in the Ukraine, we've been across even the possibility of uh, nuclear warfare and Armageddon. But I suppose the big, and I hope not, but maybe the most significant breaking news of the day is that Benjamin Netanyahu is back in power in Israel and that his coalition partners are much much, much worse than him. What could possibly go wrong? Well, that's all I've got time for, but I'll be back, uh, of course, on Sunday uh, at uh, 7 p.m. UK time. The Americans will have caught up with us, I think, in times of time changes by then. Do bring someone with you. We want to build this into the biggest alternative media house the world has ever seen. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 